We're jumping into a series on the subject of Advent and going to be covering themes over the next number of weeks that uh, no doubt for many of us are familiar and I trust that during this uh, Christmas season we'll be reminded about, so why is this season really important? What's the significance of what it is that we celebrate this time of year? This morning the main focus of our time in the Word is going to be on the name. That's the title of the message today. Before I get into the specifics of the text, let me just ask you a question, one that you really need to think about, and it's this. When you have a friend who's walking through a season of deep suffering, what do you do? When you have a friend who the bottom sort of has fallen out of their life and they're walking through a very difficult valley, what are the things that you say? Or maybe better, what are the things you shouldn't say? One of the best things that you can do, just if you're gonna do anything, do this. Say little and just be there. The challenge is, is that sometimes our words and our posture in sorrow can actually add more pain to a friend. Comparing your pain with theirs is usually not helpful. As well, making some sort of pithy statements that try and reconcile the tension that exists with pain. Things like, I'm sure God knows that he can trust you with this. Or, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Whatever that means. <laughs> or, hey, you just need to let go and let God. These, these statements, they not only serve to not answer the question and the problem of pain, but they actually serve to make things frankly, even worse, because what they do is they reinforce one of the most painful things about sorrow, which is, I don't think anybody understands. Some of you know exactly what that's like. You feel that way today. You're, you're here, and you made it to church, and nice job. It's a huge moment for you to be able to come here today, because beneath the veneer of your sort of presentation of who you are is a canyon in your soul, sense that in this room no one really understands what we're walking through. Maybe the holiday gatherings of Thanksgiving only reinforce the fact that your tribe of people and the people who you've come from are really broken and you're thinking about, I have to spend time with these people again coming up in three weeks. And how do I do that? And then you add a little bit of Christmas cheer and holiday greetings and the month of December can be inordinately depressing. So what do we need in these kind of moments? What is helpful during these seasons of loss? I was doing some research on the subject of lament recently and I ran into this quotation that I thought was really helpful. The author says this, if you think your task as comforter is to tell me that really all things considered, it's not so bad, you do not sit with me in my grief but place yourself off in the distance away from me. Over there you are of no help. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. And I love this. Come sit beside me on my morning bench. One of the ways that you can help someone who's walking through a season of difficulty is by simply sitting with them on their morning bench. In other words, when someone's walking through sorrow and difficulty and grief, one of the best things you can do is just to be 
with them. That's where real comfort is found. Want to help somebody? Be with them. So you think about Advent, there's this line in the context of what we're reading this morning in Matthew chapter 1 that sounds very similar, but it carries these words, God with us. What I want you to understand is that this idea of God with us is a comforting and helpful reality. We mark the birth of Jesus and the entrance of the Savior into the world with these words, and they represent God's entrance into our mess. They represent God sitting with us in our morning bench. We've even sung them, a reminder of the words we've already participated in together. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. O come, O bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to you, O Israel. The idea that we celebrate this time of year in Advent is the coming of the Christ child, where we rejoice that God comes to our mourning bench of our humanity. He enters into the, the sorrow of our personal experience, and then, he, by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, rescues us from the cause of all mourning benches in the first place. So through the month of December, we're going to explore what does it mean that God is with us, and we're gonna see the various connections related to how God has dwelt with us and names and words and phrases that are sort of encapsulated with meaning and significant spiritual truth. We're gonna look at a number of texts and a fair number of stories in the Bible that you may be familiar with if you're a follower of Jesus and been a part of church for a while. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus and not yet a Christian, there are stories I'm sure that you will know or at least be interested to know certain parts of them. And the goal of this examination of this God with us is to help us to both be comforted and encouraged by virtue of the spiritual significance of what this time of year is all about. So my goal is that you might not just simply kind of roll through the holiday season and not realize what I'm celebrating here is really, really important and also really helpful. So we're gonna look at three names or three words, the word son, the word Emmanuel, and the name Jesus and see all how all of these connect to this idea of God with us. So first here, the Son. Our text is Matthew 1, 18 to 23, but we find the word or the name Son in verse 21, where it says, she will bear a son. Now that, that word, Son, is loaded with meaning, loaded with spiritual significance. And in order to understand it, you need to know kind of where we are in the book of Matthew since we're just sort of dropping into this book. Matthew was written for the purpose of demonstrating to a Jewish audience that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, that he was the king, that he was the fulfillment of all of what the Old Testament had talked about. The book ends with a dominant theme of Jesus' authority in Matthew 28, where it says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and on earth. So those are words of power, words of a ruler, words of a sovereign, they're the words of a king. In fact, the 
Gospel of Matthew features the idea of kingdom more than any other gospel account. 51 times in the book of Matthew alone, the idea of kingdom or kingship is mentioned. If you look previous to verses 18 to 23, you'll see the genealogy of Jesus, even the genealogy. It's not just a mere listing of names. It's a demonstration of how Jesus is connected to the royal line of David. And then ahead in chapter 2, we find the story of the wise men, which is meant to demonstrate that this king was recognized by other kings that he was indeed a ruler, special, and to be honored. And so these kings come and pay homage to him. And then later on in chapter 2, Matthew quickly identifies that he not only is one who receives homage from other kings, but he's also a threat to earthly kings in that Herod seeks to destroy him by killing a number of children in the city of Bethlehem. So Matthew moves quickly in his book to introduce Jesus as the king. But he begins with this idea of him being a son. So Jesus became a man. The second member of the Trinity became flesh and blood. The Messiah had a mother whose name was Mary. Verse 18, now this, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So here we see the scandal of Christ's birth and that Mary is now pregnant She's betrothed, and Joseph makes an appropriate assumption, which is that Mary has been unfaithful. However, the text tells us that the virgin birth is a part of Jesus' story, this important doctrine of the church, that means that Jesus was both man and God, that he was a man, had a mother named Mary, but was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so that Jesus is both deity and humanity. We learn in the text that Joseph in verse 19, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame because this would have been an act of immorality that could have resulted in her potentially even losing her life. Instead, he chooses to divorce her quietly. And in an intervention in this moment, an angel comes and says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. So Advent, then, is a time that we celebrate the humanity of Jesus. The second member of the Trinity became human. He was born. Jesus was Mary's son. Now for us, it just doesn't seem quite as scandalous, not only because it's familiar, this idea of Jesus becoming a man, but also because human beings are the, the, the ultimate representation of God on earth. So we're the highest form of life on the planet. And so there's a tendency for us not to see Jesus' humanity as a shocking reality as what it is. Let me try and help you with this. Imagine the sovereign God with body odor. Imagine the Son of God with pimples, burping, gets worse, (laughs) having food in his teeth, passing gas. You allowed to say that in church? In our first service, we had a little kid up up there go, (laughs) Imagine the Son of God stubbing his toe, picking his nose talking with food in his mouth, falling into bed exhausted, or having a woman wink at him. 
It's shocking, isn't it? Like these things, they're hard to even, as I say them, they feel uncomfortable, and they should, because the humanity of Jesus was a cosmic shock. God became man, Jesus became a son. It means that Jesus enters into the mess and the brokenness of our world. And so besides just the the fallen nature of the people around him, Jesus enters into the, the mess of whispers about his family background. In fact, in John chapter eight, the Pharisees throw his questionable birth from their perspective into his face, and while they're talking about who is Jesus' father, they throw it at him that, well, at least we weren't born of sexual immorality. You ever lived walking by a group of people and they're whispering and as you walk by, they stop? That happens to me every Sunday. (laughs) It's an odd feeling. It's an uncomfortable feeling. You ever lived with half-truths being said about you and there's nothing you can do to clean them up? Ever lived about a few years with a perception that your family's a mess? Maybe in Thanksgiving you, you, just, you saw it in spades and you're just like, man, I'm glad none of my friends see this. This is embarrassing. There's a number of reasons why it really matters that Jesus was a son, but among them it means that he understands what it's to live in our world. He really understands. The fact that Jesus was human means a number of things, even from a a spiritual standpoint. Let me give you five. It means, number one, that Jesus is our sympathetic helper. It means that by his own personal experience, he knows what it's like to be human. He knows how to struggle. He knows about temptations. He knows about the pains of life. He knows about the sorrows. Jesus has stood at a grave and wept. He knows what it's like to walk in the world. Hebrews 2.18 says this, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So if you came to church today and you barely got here and you have this huge weight on your shoulders and you're thinking about the month of December and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. Like this is a heavy season. I'm supposed to be happy, but internally are not. And you come into a crowd of people and you wonder, does anybody understand me in this room? And you know what? Maybe nobody understands you in this room or maybe nobody understands you as you hear this message, but I can rest, give you a rest assurance, give you a assurance and you could rest assured that Jesus knows because he became a man he was human he knows what it's like to walk where we've walked he also then is our sinless representation Jesus's full obedience as a man has the potential to count for those who were not sinless in other words Jesus's obedience can be applied to those who were not obedient. Listen to Romans 5, 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many were made righteous. So Jesus can be my sinless representative because he was a man. It also means that he can then become my sacrifice. The humanity of Jesus means that he can die in my place and to absorb the penalty that I rightfully deserved. Hebrews 2, 17 says this, therefore, he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers. That's an unbelievable statement that the Bible would make. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It also means because he's human that he can be my mediator 
That my alienation from God requires that somebody stands in the gap and that Jesus as a man is able to stand in the gap between God and me. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And it also means that Jesus then becomes my example to follow. So his humanity matters because he can be a helper, my representative, my sacrifice, my mediator, but it also means he can be my example As a man, he shows us how to live. He provides a model for us as to what real obedience and what real righteousness is. 1 Peter 2 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So here's your mantra. You can choose to be like Jesus if you're a follower of him. Your goal is to be like him. And that means that when you're walking through difficulties or you think of how you're going to act around certain difficult people, maybe it's at work, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe it's with family members that you're going to have to spend time with again, and you think, how am I going to do this? How you're going to do this is you're going to do your very best to be like Jesus. That's the goal. And you may even need to huddle up your children if you're married with with kids and to, to, to remind them, look, our goal in this event is for us to be like Jesus, regardless of what's said, regardless if they like us, regardless if they're supportive, regardless if when we close the door and leave, they're talking about us behind our back at the end of the day. It doesn't matter because Jesus understands all of these things and my singular goal in life is I wanna be like him. So Jesus' humanity matters. When you wonder what God really thinks of you, remember that Jesus absorbed all of your judgment. When you start to think about how God and you are so frightfully different, remember that it's Jesus who bridges the gap between you and God. When you're frustrated with your imperfections and your failures, when maybe you're like one of those people who comes to the end of the year and you think about all the things you'd hoped to do in 2017 or you realize as your children get older the things that you weren't able to teach them or to help them in or you see things that are just intractable behavior patterns in yourself and you realize I am so fundamentally not where I want to be. Remember that it's Jesus who obeyed perfectly for you. And when you feel alone and when you feel abandoned, when you feel worn out, when you feel weary, when you are wishing that someone really understands, remember Jesus became a man so that he can understand. And my hope is that you'll realize that Jesus became a son so that when you feel like I don't think anybody really fully comprehends what I'm going through, that you could be able to spend time individually with Jesus and to be able to say thank you that you became a man so that you understand what it's like to walk where I'm walking right now. So Jesus became a son, a son. Here's the second word, it's the word Emmanuel. In verse 22, Matthew goes back to an Old Testament prophecy. Matthew 1.22 says, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, says, Quote, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds this, because this is the point, which means God with us. So what's happening here? This is part of a, a prophecy during the 8th century B.C. At the time King Ahaz was in control, there was a looming threat from the nation of Syria that they would come in and invade, and, and Ahaz was, was inordinately afraid because of this fear of this nation that was going to come in. 
And in the middle of that season, Isaiah comes to Ahaz. Isaiah the prophet comes to King Ahaz and tells him, Ahaz, you're part of the line of David. You can trust the Lord. He's going to deliver you. But Ahaz would have none of it. Instead, he takes gold from the temple and he, he buys the nation of Assyria's support in order so that Assyria would come in and save him. Isaiah knows this, and so he says to him, ask a sign of the Lord. He's trying to strengthen Ahaz's faith. Ask a sign of the Lord to help you believe. And Ahaz hypocritically says, he's the one I ask a sign of the Lord. And so therefore, Isaiah gives him a sign of the Lord anyways. Which is, behold, this virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's taken out of the book of Isaiah. This idea is there's a woman who's going to bear a son, and that son is a symbol to you that God is indeed with you. You see, the problem is that Ahaz didn't want God's solution. He didn't want to be able to rest in God's ability to protect him and to take care of him. No, instead he wanted to use his gold from the temple in order to buy support from a foreign nation because Ahaz would rather have the security of knowing how the deliverance would come than the rest and the tension of seeking God's face, believing that God somehow will deliver him. Ahaz attempts to solve his own problems. And yet God was the one who could intervene in this national crisis and preserve his people. So this prophetic word is then used by Matthew as the fulfillment of this prophecy. It was partially fulfilled in the Old Testament and then fully realized in the coming of Jesus because the advent, the coming of Christ, is another example of God coming to rescue people from that which they could not rescue themselves. It is God coming near. It is God with us. It is the moment in history when God comes to his people. So Jesus becomes human, and here we also have the Son of God. We have God with us. This idea of God being with his people, being there to deliver them, being there to rescue them, is all throughout the Bible. Really, it becomes the, the bookends of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Think in the Garden of Eden. God is with Adam and, Eden, Adam and Eve before sin. In the Exodus, God is with them as he becomes a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day. He's with them at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24 as he gives the law. He's there at the setup of the tabernacle in Exodus 40 and he's there dwelling among them in 1 Kings 8 in regard to the temple. And then if you fast forward all the way to the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 we see it again that I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to me, from the depth of your soul as a human being, there is a relentless longing to be with God. You were made to be with him. Sin broke that withness as it relates to your relationship with God, and that's why Christ comes, according to John's account in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God with us by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection, makes it possible for us to be with God forever. And the reason this matters is because what happens in the work of grace is that God comes to his people. He comes to them. God with them is something that God initiates. The result is that mankind, we are in a hopeless position. 
God comes to our rescue. He enters the mess of our humanity. And so therefore, it's remarkable not only that Jesus becomes a human, but it is that God in flesh, God in flesh, deals with all of the challenges of our humanity. In the manger is the Son of God, and then hanging on the cross is the Son of God who bears the weight of the sin of those who would put their trust in him. So this this God with us reality of Jesus is hard to even overestimate in terms of its importance. To have God with you means that he is the son of God who is more powerful than anything you and I can imagine. Here is the sovereign king of the universe. Here in this manger is the creator, the, the mighty warrior Here's this this one who is powerful and perfect and pleasing, that there is nothing that is too difficult for him, nothing that surprises him, nothing that hinders him, and nothing can stop him. Here is this son of God, God with us, over whom the demons tremble at his name. The devil is no match for him, and death has already been defeated by him. He is God, and he is God with us. So don't walk through the holiday season just thinking, well, we celebrate Jesus was born. This means God is with us, and that means that if he was with you in this kind of moment in terms of coming to rescue you from your rebellion and your sinfulness, then surely he can be with you with the uncertainty of next year. Surely he can be with you with the uncertainty of your children's walks and how they are living. Surely he can be with you in the middle of some sort of health crisis. Surely he can be with you in whatever challenge it is that that you are walking through. And the key to this time of year is to realize that the message that was sent in Advent is designed to be applied in so many other arenas because God doesn't just rescue once. He rescues over and over and over again. And the Advent is the moment that we see his rescue most clearly, most evidently, and most powerfully. For some of you, this is a really important thought that God is able to deliver you, that God is able to sit with you on your mourning bench. The entrance of the Son of God into the world means that a clear message has been sent about God's willingness to rescue people. So Advent is a time when we remember what does it mean that God is with us? So we have the word son, we have the word Emmanuel, final word, final names, the name Jesus. Go back now to verse 21. It says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. I hope you have a Bible open that you can see what comes next because this is a very, very important phrase and you'd be inclined to maybe just miss this or not savor it. So let's, let's read it out loud together, shall we? The next little phrase that begins with the word for. So you should call his name Jesus together, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, if you hear that and read that and you're like, oh, I know what that means, that's a miracle. If you read that and you're like, I know what that is, and if you've experienced that personally, if you're like, he, he saved me from my sins, you need to know that that's an, an unbelievable miracle that has taken place to you because embedded within your heart is the very nature to hear that statement and go, what? 
And yet God, in some way, if you're a follower of Jesus, invaded your heart, helped you to see the beauty of what that means. And here you are today, considering God with us. The name Jesus means Jehovah saves. It means that God is in the business of saving people. Saving people from what? Saving people from themselves. I've said this before, but you may be here and have not heard it, or maybe this is your first Sunday. You need to know, friend, that the thing that Jesus saves people from is themselves. He saved me from me. How does that work? Well, the Bible says this in Romans 3.23. It says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means that embedded within the heart of fallen humanity is this penchant to compare God's glory or mine in a mirror. And the Bible says that when given the choice between God's glory and my glory, I choose mine every single time. No matter how glorious and lovely and compelling God's glory is, I see my own reflection and I like that which is why you walk in the mall and can't hardly stop looking at yourself in the mirror. And sometimes you don't like what you see, but even that is idolatry, because you wish you were something more than what you actually are. We fall short of God's glory in another way as in relationship to rules, that God says, this is how we should live, and we hear those rules and think, no, I wanna live this way. And why is that happening? Because deep within the heart of the human race is this penchant to be our own God, to be self-autonomous to be self-sufficient, to define rules the way that we want them, to live the way that we want to, and as a result, we'll find any way that we can in order to fulfill this penchant for our own love of ourselves. That's what it is. It's essentially a glory battle. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and the effect of this is, according to Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. It means not only that death came upon the human race, not only that we have funerals that are a regular part of our experience, meant to be a warning, a warning that you are not ultimate, that all of us have the same story. We are born, and unless God intervenes and he comes, we die. Death is a reminder that human beings are not infinite. But even so, death spreads to all sorts of things. It spreads into marriage relationships, into communication, into how you interact with your friends, the things that you pursue and why you pursue them. You take your job and what could be a good thing and it becomes death because you try to get so much of it because you want to fulfill the longing within your heart that only God can fulfill. And what happens is the wages of sin, the effect of sin, the, the reality of exchange of this glory means that human beings are relentless in their, in their self-destruction and pulling apart the fabric of their own lives. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You live long enough now that you can see it in the pattern of your life from relationship to relationship, from job to job to situation to situation, and it suddenly begins to make sense that you keep bringing the same you to all of those scenarios. And yet the beautiful hope of the gospel is that God aims to rescue you, not from your circumstances, not from other people, not from your background, not from your parents, not from your heritage. He aims to rescue you from you, from the way in which we tend to try to grab a hold of our own glory. So how does this relate to Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus shall save his people from their sins? It means that there is only one way for us to be right with God. In the midst of a postmodern 
culture that would tell us there's lots of different ways to get to God, the Bible says this very clearly in Acts chapter four. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the Bible proclaims this loud and clear. There is no other name that you could name that as the possibility of rescuing you from yourself. And why is that? Because no one else is man and God. No one else was born, no one else died like he did. No one else hung on a cross to pay atonement for sin. No one else brought the possibility of mediation between God and man. And so if you're here today and not yet a follower of Jesus, can I plead with you to realize the fact that one day, one day, you're gonna have to give an account for the reality of your life. And imagine that moment when the, sort of the book is opened of everything that we've done. Just think of that. Every thought that you've thought, every deed that you've ever done. We're living in an environment from a cultural standpoint where all sorts of skeletons are coming out of people's closets. It's a good reminder that your sins will find you out. But imagine if the news media or your record isn't the problem. Imagine if there's a God who knows what you think. A God who knows that every thought you've ever had, every motive that you've ever, ever run through your soul about why you've done what you do. And imagine then standing before that God as he unfolds the reality of your life and line by line by line by line, he can detail the, the, the judgment that is against you. In that moment, your only hope is that somebody is with you and that person who needs to be with you is Jesus. That when the compelling weight of evidence is brought to bear and we see the weight of our own sinfulness, the only hope in that moment is for Jesus to enter the equation and to say, I've paid for all of those sins, every single one of them I've paid for. Close the book, the judgment has already been written. This person is free, they are not condemned. They have been covered by the blood of Christ and therefore grace has been applied to them. Can you imagine then? Can you imagine then why the new heaven and the new earth is so unbelievably glorious and beautiful? As people who have had their sins forgiven, those who have been cleansed from judgment, those who have the very righteousness of Christ draped around them now bask in glory and worship of this King of kings and Lord of lords who not only rescued them and who's not always only, only glorious, but also this one who came to them and was with them, who entered the mess of their world in order so that he could rescue them from themselves. Friends, this is why the birth of Jesus is so important. This, this child will be the long-awaited Messiah, this anointed one, this chosen one, this Christ, will be the baby that God uses to save people from their transgressions. That underneath all of the conflict in the world, underneath all the wars, all the core problems associated with crime and injustice, all the dynamics related to death as our enemy, we have this one singular thing that is present in our hearts and in the world. It is sin, it destroys everything, separates us, tarnishes us, kills us, even damns us, and yet the Son of God named Jesus can change all of that. That's why his name means Jesus saves. And the effect is that as God lavishes his love on us, it changes how we think about ourselves and our world. Just finished a great book, a sky just 
Bani, I think is how you say it, his book called With, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. In one of the chapters, he quotes Henry Nguyen, or Nguyen, who says this, about God's love being lavished on you. If you keep this in mind, that God loves you, you can deal with an enormous amount of success as well as an enormous amount of failure without losing your identity. Because your identity is in that you are loved. Long before your father or mother, your brothers or sisters, your teachers or your church or any people, you were in a loving Let me read that again. Long before your father, mother, brothers or sisters, your teachers or your church or any people touched you in a loving as well as in a wounding way, long before you were rejected by some person or praised by somebody else, that voice has been there always saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. That love is there before you were born and will be there long after you die. And the greatest demonstration of that love is that Jesus comes as a son He comes as Emmanuel. His name is Jesus because he saves people from their sins. And so my question would be, if this hasn't already become true in your life, why not turn from running your own life and instead say, Jesus, I'm done. I need you to come and transform me from the inside out. Why not make Jesus king today? Why not be done with the the running and the exchange of glory? Why not be done and instead invite him to conquer your sin and invite invite him to take over? The name Son, the name Emmanuel, the name Jesus all send a glorious message. It is that God is with us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to know that God is with you even today, and he's demonstrated over and over in his relationship with you, his ability to rescue you, help you, and to walk through whatever trial or difficulty that you're in. And this morning, you may just need to be reminded, God, I thank you that you are still with me. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it means that today, God can be with you as for the first time you step across the line and say, I actually believe, I believe. Because at the end of the day, what Advent is about is this, that real hope comes from God's help. That the real hope you need is not found in yourself, it's not found in a change of circumstances, the real hope that you need is is, is not connected to some sort of change that you can produce on your own, that at the end of the day, real hope, real lasting hope comes because God is ready to help you. And friend, he is ready to help you today because Jesus came so he could be with us. He came so he could walk and understand what our life is like and he came to be God because he wants in order to be able to save us from our sins and that's the purpose why Jesus came. And that's the purpose of this Advent season. That God enters our mess in order to redeem us from the mess that we are. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you to remind us about the ever-present help that the Son of God is to us. And regardless of where you find us today, regardless of the circumstances in our life, remind us that there's real real hope with your help. 
Help, help us to believe that today. Help us to trust that you can help us. And while we're in a moment of prayer and a time of just reflection, I wonder if there's something that you personally need to talk to the Lord about. Some burden that you're carrying that you just need to say to your soul, soul, Jesus can help me. Maybe just to lay out some sort of burden and to say, Lord, would you help me? Help me to believe you in this. And you know, it may be that you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. And friend, I'd invite you this very moment, why would you wait any longer? Why not instead simply say, Jesus, I'm done. Would you come? I believe. I believe you're the Son of God. I know I'm a sinner. I want you to come right now and save me. The Bible says you pray in faith and believe, and you're saved. God changes you. Why not even now? Make this the day when you move from darkness to light, from death to life. Oh, Lord, thank you for the powerful reality of the Son of God in the flesh. Thank you for the hope that comes from your help. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.